On today's episode, we talk about the butcher that is John Brown, as well as Elmer Crawford. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the Boondocks Bad in the Boondocks People put it down But what you're supposed to do In a small town Bad in the Boondocks Bad in the Boondocks Lord have mercy Can't help it Bad in the Boondocks Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Stan. And I am Drew. How's it going? It's going pretty good, pretty good. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. Well, we tried to do it yesterday, and it <laughs> turned, to, turned to shit, kind yeah. of. Yeah, it did. Kind of like our life. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're glad that we're here. We are hope that you are glad that we're here. Am I a comedian because my life's a joke? Ha ha ha! That's pretty funny. I just wow. came up with that one. Anyway, um, visit our website, boondockspod.com. Dot com. Yep. Follow us on Facebook at Bad in the Boondocks. Um, follow us on Twitter at, at Bad Boondocks or Instagram, and our handle from there is um, Boondocks Bad in the. Or just look up, just look up bad in the boondocks, and you'll find us. Um, all right, guys, we're gonna go ahead. Oh, please rate review us. Yeah, we don't really care if you give us five stars, one star. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. It doesn't really matter. Just do it. We read all of them. Yeah, some break our hearts, some make us happy. Yeah, well, I've learned. Who cares? Yep. I mean, I love the. I love to see the good reviews. I love that. But as far as any haters or something like that. Haters be hating. Yeah. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. Nope. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and I get to go first this time. Okay. I'm doing Mr. John Ronald Brown. I've never heard of that name. All right. Well, you will know after this. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, a fun fact, I got him a story. I got him a story for him to use. Well, turns out there's like nothing or no details on him. It sounded like a good story from the summary, but it was not. It wasn't. So So to the story that I chose. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, Paul Ciotti was a junior reporter working for Times Magazine's San Francisco Bureau in 1973 when he first encountered Dr. John Ronald Brown. Brown and his business partner, James Spence, held an unusual formal dinner at Spence's home where Ciotti and several other guests were served by a dozen attentive transsexuals. Okay, this is so weird. Spence and Brown hoped to convince a group of urologists, proctologists, and internists to join them in setting up, quote, the finest sex change facility anywhere. So, what? 
The son of a Mormon physician, Brown had been drafted into the Army where he claimed that he did so well on the general classification test that he was pulled out of the clerk typist pool and sent to medical school. Brown graduated from the University of Utah School of Medicine in August 1947. For nearly two decades, Brown was a general practitioner in California, Alaska, Hawaii, and the Marshall Islands, where he nearly lost a patient. That's a lot. And how much is a decade? Ten years. Okay. Okay. I've never been good at math, so there you go. Brown then spent two years at Newark City Hospital as chief resident and later attended a plastic surgery program at New York's Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, but failed to achieve certification by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. Authority figures, Brown explained, turned his brain to cottage cheese. Nonetheless, Spence maintained that Brown had developed a revolutionary procedure for giving transsexuals fully orgasmic clitorises and realistic-looking vaginas. <laughs> to make his point, Dr. Brown showed his guest several grisly photos of his surgical technique. Mm. At first, the other doctor seemed interested in Spence's proposal for a full-service sex change clinic. Yes, but has he tried it on himself? Ciotti watched Spence cut up a pair with a pocket knife while one doctor asked how they would select candidates for surgery. It takes one to know one, Spence told his stunned guests. We let other transsexuals make the decisions. They can tell best when someone is a true transsexual a woman trapped in a man's body. But a month later, Brown called Ciotti in near panic, begging for him not to publish his name. The proposed clinic had fallen through, and now Spence was saying all sorts of awful things about him. Yet, despite this rocky start over the next 25 years, Brown would claim to have performed over 600 vaginoplasty operations. Hey, we have an episode named Vagina Plus. Yes, we do. But Should have not, saved it for this one. It's not related to this. It's related to the song. Nearly all without the hindrance of a medical license. In 1977, the California Board of Medical Quality Assurance yanked Brown's license for gross negligence, incompetence, and practicing unprofessional medicine in a manner which invoked moral turpitude. The board charged Brown. What are you charging? Oh, the board charged Brown to perform surgery. Oh, no. The board made Brown let Spence perform the surgery. Okay. Who was also not a doctor. So, I don't understand his, um... I don't oh, no, no, no. The board said that Brown oh, let Spence do surgery, and Spence wasn't a doctor. Oh, so that's why they have more of a problem with him. Yes. Okay, that, that makes more sense, because it it wasn't really explaining why they were thought of that. Brown allowed transsexual patients to forge prescriptions diagnose patients, and provide medical care. He misrepresented 
sex change surgery on insurance forms and he exhibited gross negligence by failing to perform operations in an acute care facility. Brown just did them in his office and then sent the patient home. In one instant, Brown failed to hospitalize a patient who had a life-endangering pus-infected wound the size of a softball. Brown never bothered with medical histories or physical exams before surgery, and he performed vaginoplasty on virtually anybody, no matter how physically ill or emotionally unstable. So if they wanted it, he did it. He did it, yep. Yet for all that, the administrative judge who revoked his license apparently did so very reluctantly, filing a memorandum opinion on Brown's behalf, claiming that Brown appeared to be a pioneer who made innovative contributions to the emerging field of transsexual surgery. This story sounds so fake, though. It's not. <laughs> it just sounds unreal, like just like something that you'd see in, like here, that I don't know. I don't fucking know. I don't know half the shit that comes out of my mouth. Yeah. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I know what I'm trying to say, but I don't know how to say it. How innovative a surgeon was Brown? Brown would claim credit for a vaginoplasty procedure that was actually first developed by Dr. George Bureau in 1958. However, in the 70s, most of the reputable clinics provided only vaginas and labias to transsexuals. Brown, always willing to experiment on patients, was one of the few back then willing to at least try to construct a clitoris. But plastic surgeon Jack Fisher, who personally repaired 12 to 15 of what he called Brown's pelvic disaster, said, He's a terrible, appalling technical surgeon. There's just no other way to describe it. He doesn't know how to make a straight incision. He doesn't know how to hold a knife. And he has no regard for limiting blood loss. Wow. There's always been strong opinions about John Ronald Brown. Some patients could not praise him highly enough. Quote, he gives you a vagina at a fair price. <laughs> okay, every time I say I, vagina or something, you don't no, have I to don't, laugh. I don't laugh every time. But it's like, yeah, no, I'm not even laughing about that. I'm laughing because you say it so serious. Everything you've said was so serious. It is. And you haven't laughed not once about anything. No, because it is serious. Oh, my God. Whatever. Just continue. Where's this going? How is this going? If you would let me finish. I'm just asking a question. He gives you a vagina at a fair price, one witness said. Whereas with other doctors, you had to take hormones, wait up to six years, live as a woman, undergo psychological evaluations, and then pay twelve to $20,000 or more. With Brown, it was good old-fashioned cash and carry. But Donna Colvin a transsexual who worked for Brown, remembered a man, a doctor, so-called, who shot up with Valium before surgeries, who purposely damaged the vagina of a transsexual who made him mad, and who left a trans man with a raw, gaping wound after a botched mastectomy. His pants would fall down during surgery. (laughs) Ha ha ha. See, I laughed. He laughed just then. That's the only time. Transgender author and activist Dallas Denny periodically posted warnings about Brown for years. 
Among transsexuals, he was known as Tabletop Brown for his willingness to operate on kitchen tables, which sometimes would collapse, as well as in garages and motel rooms. In the Tijuana Experience, Denny wrote, Some of these people expecting vaginoplasties receive simple penectomies, leaving them looking somewhat like a Barbie doll. Others ended up with something which looked like a penis, which had been split and sewn into their growing, which is essentially what had been done. Some ended up with vaginas, becoming inflamed and infected. Some ended up with permanent colostomies. Some ran out of money and were dumped in back alleys and parking lots to live or die. Okay. Uh, I don't don't know. What? Nothing. But Brown offered more than surgery. According to another witness named Cherie, quote, Sherry. No, it's Cherie. You sure about that? Yeah, I am. Quote, he'd shoot silicone anywhere you wanted it. For $200, he'd do breast surgery. For $500, he'd do cheeks, breasts, and hips. That is really cheap. Yes. That is like unreal cheap. After injections, you had to lie flat on your back for three days so the silicone wouldn't go anywhere. He plugged the holes with crazy glue. Of course he did. <laughs> Unquote. He didn't. He There's didn't, where your price is. He didn't use, um, shit, what do you call them? Was it name brand crazy he glue? He didn't use the corkscrews to plug them up. He used super glue. Yeah. Corkscrews, you mean the corks? <laughs> yeah, it's the fucking corks. I don't I, Corkscrew I gets a cork I out. I couldn't remember what the fuck. You said cork, but then what, you added screw. I couldn't remember what it was called. And this I, this this story's really got you thinking about screwing, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> I'm at or the lack of that because it sounds a little dis- disgusting, some of the infectionness and stuff. Well, that's a nothing. Most doctors who lose their license find other lines of work, but not old Brown. After successfully losing permission to practice medicine in Hawaii, then Alaska, then the island of St. Lucia, Brown returned to Southern California, where he became an underground black market practitioner in gender reassignment surgery. Breast implants, facelifts, liposuction, silicone injections, and... Penile implants. I mean, it's like majorly illegal, but it's pretty cool. To avoid the law, Brown performed the actual surgery in Mexico. In his advertising, Brown referred to his international practice. Wait, so where was he? He was in California, but he would go to Mexico to do the surgery. So he would just take them? Yeah. They must have really wanted them surgeries for a cheap price, huh? Well, I mean, $600 versus 20000 Yeah. But if you're going to yeah. cut off my penis and make a vagina, I'm going to want to pay the 20000 Well, probably, yes. Yeah, I would. I mean, it seems like a very botched surgery. In January of 1986, Penthouse Forum magazine published an article about Brown entitled, The Incredible Dick Doctor. The article portrayed Brown as a flaky, scatterbrained character who backed into cars whose pants fell down in the operating room (laughs) when he accidentally cut open a penile shaft, causing blood to spurt everywhere. Brown casually declared, I made a boo-boo. 
Then the television news magazine Inside Edition took its crack at Brown with an investigative report titled The Worst Doctor in America. Seemed like it. Brown was shown performing a scalp flap operation to give a transsexual a more feminine hairline. Unfortunately, the patient, who should have been under deep sedation, moaned throughout the procedure, (laughs) which Brown dismissed on camera as nothing unusual. That sounds like you. I mean, not transsexual surgery, but... Mm, Maybe that, too. The San Diego district attorney disagreed, and Brown spent 19 months in jail for practicing medicine without a license. Brown had previously been convicted of prescribing narcotics and practicing under a false name after his license was revoked. But jail terms didn't deter Brown. Quote, I didn't like some of the things that organized doctors were doing, so I rebelled. So is that the reason that he um, charged such a low price because he was a shit doctor? Well, he wasn't even a doctor. He didn't have a license. Then how did he get a job? He was doing it in garages and motel rooms and tables. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Later, I didn't like what the government was doing in support of the medical organization, so I rebelled again. I chose to ignore the laws, unquote. Finally, a lawsuit by a former patient, Julie Phillips, helped drive Brown to Mexico. That same year in San Francisco, Dr. Paul Walker formulated the standards of care for gender dysphoric individuals during the aftermath of the Julie Phillips lawsuit. Dr. Walker and other members of the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association, that's a mouthful, literally, (laughs) had been instrumental in helping to revoke Brown's medical license. There's little doubt that Brown's butchery played a significant role in establishing the standards of care that today govern who has access to transsexual medical services. After driving a taxi for a year in 1992, Brown resumed his surgical practice in Tijuana, posing as Dr. Ralph Molina as the New Woman Surgical Center while living in San Isidro, California. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Isidro? Isidro. Isidro. Um, San Isidro. Here's the thing. So he drew, What a life, man. What a life. <laughs> one a weird life. One transsexual, Cherie, had visited Brown's earlier Tijuana clinic, but changed her mind after she saw the conditions there. The sewers overflowed once or twice a day. There was never enough running water or enough bathrooms. The operating room was an ordinary bedroom with an OBGYN chair. After surgery, Brown would just grab the patient's dried, blood-clotted bandages and rip them right off. Sometimes, Cherie said, Brown would sip coffee while performing surgery. Nothing wrong with that. She remembered him walking down the hall eating raw weenies right out the package. Cherie said, a fucking package of raw weenies. <laughs> I ain't gonna lie, that's a pretty funny dog. That's a pretty funny one. <laughs> then on May 11th, 1998, San Diego police discovered the body of Philip Bondi alone in his room at the local Holiday Inn. 
the medical examiner's office determined that Bondi died of gangrene from a recently amputated leg. At first, a friend of Bondi's initially told authorities that Bondi had been in a taxi accident in Mexico. Yet the police were puzzled. Why did the Tijuana police know nothing about it? And why did Bondi have two $5,000 receipts in his room, one for surgery and the other for hospitalization, both signed by a man named John Brown? That doesn't make Well, forged, I assume. A defective picked Brown up at his filthy apartment and brought him in for questioning. If a child had been living there, the detective recalled, I'd have put him in a foster home. Dressed in a wrinkled shirt and a stained jacket, Brown offered to make a little statement. It went on for 29 pages, although the police still didn't know why Brant, shit, didn't know why Bandy lost his leg. They were convinced something illegal was involved. Nothing gets past them. After Brown's statement, the detective in charge left the interview room to tell his superiors that he was going to arrest Brown. But after waiting 45 minutes, Brown grew bored and simply walked out of the station and headed home. <laughs> what's, he, it, what's his full name? Because I want to look him up. I want, to, I want to see his face. John Brown. John. John. I forgot his middle name. I'll just say John Br- Brown. But after waiting 40, oh yeah, I said that. He had barely gone two blocks when suddenly two police cars and nearly a dozen cops intercepted him. When one officer pointed a gun at his head, Brown looked at the weapon in bewilderment. All I could think, Brown later said, was, what a fucking big gun. (laughs) The police still couldn't figure out why Bondi's healthy leg had been removed. Yet, while the authorities didn't quite know what happened, there was one person who did. 3,000 miles away, Dallas Denny read the case and immediately recognized Brown's handiwork. Denny called Stacy Running, the San Diego prosecutor, and told her assist- assistant about apotemnophilia, a fetish identified by psychologist John Money, in which an individual is sexually turned on by missing limbs and sometimes wishing to become an amputee. Yes, that's him. Yeah. Denny further supplied running with information that Brown had been performing illegal amputations since the 70s. The police later discovered that another friend had put Philip Bondi in touch with Brown. Brown performed the amputation in Mexico that Saturday morning. Bondi was happy at first, even though he felt Brown sewing on his sawing on his leg. Since it was also illegal to amputate a healthy leg in Mexico, Brown disposed of the evidence by driving 15 miles into the desert and throwing the leg out the window for the coyotes. Brown then drove Bondi to his room in the San Diego Holiday Inn, where he gave Bondi some lessons in walking with crutches before leaving him alone to fend for himself. But did he sew it up? Yeah. And how was there not more deaths if he's been doing this this long? Yeah, there was some illegal, deaths. Illegal amputations. Bonnie was later found lying half on the bed and half off with blood oozing from a blackened and gangrenous stump. I saw the phone tipped over 
Bondi's friend said, I saw the wheelchair upside down. I saw the sheets pulled out. I touched the top of his leg, of his head. Rigor mortis had set in. The man did not have a peaceful death. Deputy D.A. Running asked the judge to hold Brown without bail on the grounds that he was an incredibly dangerous individual to the citizens both of the United States and Mexico. Initially, Brown had been charged with involuntary manslaughter, but after reviewing the evidence against him, Deputy D.A. Running upgraded the charges to implied malice murder in the second degree. This applies in cases where the defendant does something that is dangerous to human life, knowing that it is dangerous to human life and doing it anyway. The police didn't exactly lack for evidence. After searching Brown's San Isidro apartment, they found bloody shoes, bloody pillows, used needles, silicone vials, and two or three dozen empty tubes of crazy glue. Bloody towels in the bathtub soaking in bleach. Bloody swabs in a travel bag. And dozens of returned advertising brochures which read, The prettiest pussies are John Brown pussies. What the hell? The happiest patients are John Brown patients. Because, one, each has a sensitive clit. Number two, 99% get orgasms. Number three, careful skin draping gives a natural appearance. And four, men love the pretty pussies and the sexy response. Jesus Christ. Police also found several videotapes of Brown's operations, including one that was entitled, Jack has a new piss hole behind his balls. (laughs) then showed Brown cutting an opening in Jack's urethra just behind his testicles so he could urinate sitting down. Are you fucking kidding me? But it was Brown's transsexual surgery promotion video that most turned the prosecution against him. He had a microphone and his hand is kind of shaking. You see him reach up and grab his hand. And this is his dominant hand, the one that he operates with. He holds up crude drawings ripped out of spiral notebook. He says, this is the corpa, the corpa. He stumped on the word. He finally says, it's the capora carnosa, the spongy tissue on the underside of the penis. He goes on in this vein. You can see him waving the cameraman off when he loses the thought. The tape was so crude you could hear dogs barking during the surgery and music playing. The scrotal skin was lying on a board. It had pushpins in it. It was so dirty and dried out it looked like it had been run over by a tire. Oh my God. I've seen medical videos before, said investigator Tom Basinski. Usually the scalpel slices right in, but Brown's scalpel was so dull he had to push hard and saw back and forth. I said to myself, oh my God, this is why this guy has to be stopped. Not surprisingly, at the trial, all the men found watching Brown's operation videos especially upsetting. Do I have to watch this surgery? One courtroom witness asked. 
Well, yes, you do, the prosecutor replied. You're the judge. Brown does an operation called an ilium loop, in which he takes a piece of intestine, leaving it attached to the blood supply, and diverts it to make a vagina. Wait, what the? He takes a a piece of intestine to make a vagina. The problem is, your intestines digest food, secrete enzymes, and they smell. He almost killed a rebuttal witness by doing that to her. Because your intestines are then connected to your vaginal lining. In many cases, he stitches it back to your stomach, and you get peritonitis. I'm so, I'm lost a little bit. In other words, one woman ended up, well, one surgical woman ended up housebound for the rest of her life, considering that she now had poop going into her vagina constantly. Her new vagina. Why would he do that, though? I thought that he would actually take it out, like cut a part of the intestine out, and then make it into, like, use that tissue. But why wouldn't you use, like, why wouldn't you use, like, ass tissue or something? Oh, he would cut the some tissue from the inside of your mouth and put to make your labia bigger. Why would he do that? Just use some other tissue. You've got so many other parts of your body that's a lot bigger. I don't understand him. But to make the murder charge stick, the prosecution needed to show Brown had a long-standing history of reckless surgery. And I'm not even going into the penis implants. No, please don't. It's, It's all good. That meant finding patients to testify against him, and they weren't easy to come by. Many of Brown's clients were unstable people who hadn't been accepted by the reputable clinics. Wow, so they actually liked the surgery that he did? Some of them. Some denied knowing Brown, while others made complete statements only to recant them later. Why did they try to protect him? When an investigator began calling people on Brown's patient list, many simply hung up on him. Some were hookers or sex workers, but that was a quote, some were hookers. Might not want anybody to find out or like. Right, that's another reason. Some thought they were in trouble. Some just didn't like the police. Me, I hate the police. One time they called one woman and an older woman answered and said, why do you want my son? He committed suicide two weeks ago. Oh, my God. Nevertheless, several still did come forward to tell their own horror stories against Brown. It was a tough case, Brown's attorney later admitted. The evidence, facts, and the law were all against us. With no real defense, Brown's attorney tried portraying him as a kindly man courageously helping a forgotten segment of society. No one else would deal with the transsexuals, went his closing argument. John Brown said, I'll deal with him. Did he do this for money? No. He did it because he cared. And if you don't believe that, then you have my permission to find him guilty of murder. Oh, 
unfortunately for Brown, after deliberating, he was but a good. single day, that's exactly what the jury did. <laughs> Convicting Brown of second-degree murder, Brown's attorney immediately announced he would appeal. Brown didn't remain idle while awaiting his appeal. He wrote to a dozen states, asking if they would consider giving him a license to serve some remote rural community. Brown also told Paul Ciotti that in 1977, after he lost his license, he went walking up a hill one night carrying a kerosene lantern when God spoke to him. Words started pushing into his mind. The words kept coming up for two days, and the message said, Why do you kick against the traces? It went on, You should know that the details of your life have been arranged so that you would be where you are now doing what you were doing. And he knew that that meant working on the transsexuals. It may have not meant that. I don't think he heard that. (laughs) (laughs) But if he did, it may have not have meant that. Brown said he knew he'd been given a mission to take care of the surgical needs of God's children, the transsexuals. After he is released from jail, Brown had planned to raise money to finish development of a hyperthermia chamber that would cure cancer, AIDS, and genital herpes. That would be great if it did. And just in case God forgets him, Brown frequent frequently reminded God of the special program that he planned for AIDS babies. And he prayed every night that he would be released soon. Did you just say AIDS babies? Yes. But he's dead. He died in prison. Wow. I assume at an older age. He was old whenever he got there. I know. he was. How old was he? Well, I said that at one point he was 69 whenever he got out of jail one time. Yep. So he died either in the 70s or 80s, most likely. Anyway, that is the butcher, John Ronald Brown. That was a really weird surgeon, huh? Would you like to get a doctor like that? I wouldn't. Put a vagina on you? I don't want a vagina on me. I know you might. I don't want a vagina on me. You kind of say that in your sleep. I don't want a vagina on me. You say, oh, I want a vagina. Whatever. Oh, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> He's a, uh... <laughs> I want a pretty pussy. <laughs> That's why you'd be holding that cat all the time. Sure. <laughs> okay, do you have anything for us? Yes, I actually do. And it's not too long because I figured that yours was going to be That's pretty. what she said. <laughs> Whatever. I figured that yours was going to be, you know, a decent, a decent story. <laughs> Shut up. Asshole. So, okay, well, anyways, I'm going to be talking about Elmer Crawford. And, um, well, in 1970, Elmer Crawford was accused of electrocuting and bashing his pregnant wife and three children before bundling them into a car and sending it off of a cliff. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> that would hurt. Not if you're dead already, <laughs> I meant, but I meant the electrocution would hurt. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. So would the bashing. So the would cliff, a botched vaginal plastic. The cliff would, might be the least 
Yeah, because you're dead already. Or if you were alive and you got sent off of a cliff, you most likely aren't really knowing what's going on because you're flying through the air in the car and stuff. I feel like the cliff dive would be the best part of that scenario. Yes. But um, just one day later, he vanished. And police are still searching for him. Is he a magician? No, he's not. Uh, he's not a magician. More than 50 years later. After reports Crawford might be in Western Australia, Vic, um, Victoria police traveled to the Pilbara region to revive the search, but were unsuccessful. What region was that? Pilbara. Uh, That's right. It's Pilbara. Queensland. Uh, it's a pie. <laughs> Let's not do any accents. Queensland. Queensland. <laughs> One for crap, I can't stop it. One for One former truck driver told the program he believed he had once spoken to the man. Now believed to be in his late 80s. Nugget, if he's still alive, I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, Nugget Wright. Oh, shit. <laughs> That's my name? Yeah. Said he might. Uh, said that he had met a man with a wife who was long gone who claimed to have moved from Melbourne in 1970. <laughs> when asked why he left the Victorian capital, the man uh, believed to be Crawford told the former driver, I'd leave in a hurry. I did something terrible. Unquote. Um, we have gotten many bad reviews on accents. Please let's not do those. I'll do, well, whatever. Nugget asked if his new acquaintance was the man Victoria Police had recently been in the area to look for. And told Seven News the man's reaction was concerning. His head dropped, his shoulders shrunk, and he had that attitude, Oh shit, I've told this bloke too much, Nugget <laughs> said. <laughs> I love the name Nugget. <laughs> Shut up, Tucker. Shut up. You're so, you ruin the story, Tucker, every time. That's why we can't have you in here. Okay, let's just continue. On July 1st, 1970, Crawford allegedly used a roughly constructed electrocution device to shock his pregnant wife, Therese, and two of their children, Catherine, age 13, and 8-year-old James. Mm-hmm. A 15-meter electrical cord with a plug at one end and extension cord socket at the other was found in the family home after the brutal deaths with five small wires with alligator clips attached to each one. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Ouch, ouch. Yeah. And ouch. Ouch. There you go. (laughs) Police believe Crawford attached the alligator clips to the ears of three family members and shot them to death as they slept. He then beat the Seems like I would wake up whenever he put the alligator clips on them. Because those would hurt by themselves. Hmm. On your ear? That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Kind of does make sense. Maybe they're really hard sleepers. I don't know. Like you, I could do anything I wanted to. I mean, I could just... Bam, I've, sla- I've tried to slap you in the face to wake you up. You haven't woken up. Uh, well, maybe they're like that. Yeah, maybe they are. 
Um, but he beat the children with a hammer. Brutal. His youngest child, six-year-old daughter, Karen, was not shot, but instead she was beaten with the hammer. The bodies were then bundled into the back of Crawford's car, where the seat had already been removed. After driving hundreds of kilometers with the bodies lying in the back, Crawford is then to believe to have arrived at the edge of Loch Ard George near Port Campbell. The it's, gorge, maybe? Huh? Gorge? Oh, that's how you say it, gorge. <laughs> the edge of Loch and Gorge, Ard Gorge, whatever, you know, near Port Campbell, and rolled the car off the cliff. I like how you did the hand as the car going down the cliff. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not funny, but the way that I did the hand as it went off the cliff. Um, the car was discovered the next day, having landed on a ledge 20 meters below the cliff edge. See, it didn't even fall all the way in there. I think he meant for it to go a little further down. I think so. Yeah, because it's a pretty deep cliff, and it really didn't go it's that It's a freaking far. gorge. It didn't go that far down. <laughs> it really didn't. How much is 20 meters? Uh, on, like, feet-wise. <sighs> Let's see. Don't know. <laughs> How many yards is in a meter? Okay, I don't know. I know three feet's in a yard. Well, you're no help. <laughs> Police knocked on Crawford's door and believe this is when he chose to flee. Um, Retired detective Adrian Donahue, who aided in recovering the bodies of the shocked and beaten family, said that it was still not too late to bring the man to justice and finally get closure on the brutal cold case. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He also said that we've got everything else, and all that they needed was a body. Him. They needed him. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't even have him. No. And he's probably dead by now. He's definitely probably dead by now, but he didn't have to, he didn't have to serve any kind of time. He he, no, he just lived his life. He did what he did, and then he, he lived going. his life, and then he died like a normal freaking person, which he wasn't a normal person. Because who who thinks of that type of plan to grab an electrocution device? And, and get, hammer your children? Wait a second, because I don't really know what alligator clips really look like. Yeah, you do. They're, cl- they're the clamps like up on battery cables. Oh, shit. The things that you boost a battery off with. Then I wonder what kind of electrocution device he got. A battery. Like a car battery. Wow. And then he hooked the clips to one end. And once you hook the clips to the other end. He goes through. Right. Damn. That would hurt. Yes, That would really hurt. I think that both devourers would. I think that it was very, I think it was very decent stories. Do you? Yeah, I do too. Mine was a little bit short, but, you know. It's fine. Yeah. All right, y'all. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Yes. If you're still here anyway. If not, <laughs> screw you. <laughs> yeah. If but. Not, you really aren't a true fan. I've been Stan. And I'm always Drew. See y'all next time. Or talk to you next time. Yeah. We're signing out to you. Uh-huh.